Anyway, I mentioned Dr. Ken Whelan, our fishery scientist. Ken, as we speak, is in Greenland. And earlier, myself and Richard Collins spoke to Ken from his hotel room of all places. Um, hello, Derek. I, I really feel at home here because I'm, I'm in a bedroom in a hotel and I'm looking out the window at a multitude of beautiful colours in the houses, lovely greens and blues and reds, a typical little village that you find uh, very close to or indeed on the, the Arctic Circle if you're a little bit further north. So I'm in southwest Greenland, Derek. I was here before. And some listeners who have really good memories might remember a report I did after about 10 years ago. But this is a completely different mission that we're on today. And uh, I must say the people here are every bit as friendly as I remember before. I mean, the uh, continent as it is of Greenland, there's only 57,000 people in the whole continent, which I think is as big or maybe even a little bigger than Western Europe. But the few thousand people that are here are really friendly come up and have a chat with you. I'm sure they don't have an idea what I'm saying to them, but it's great, really enjoyable. What language do they speak there, Ken? Uh, They speak Greenlandic. That's a very important issue at the moment. The Greenlanders, for quite a number of years now, are very keen to be as independent as they can be. And uh, it's actually under the Danish crown, but it has a lot of independence at this stage. But they're very keen to try and increase that independence. But there are huge logistical issues in terms of trying to get uh, materials and so on to and from Greenland. But they're hugely innovative, the people, and they've done a fantastic job. And the cities and so on are coming on like you wouldn't believe. And where we were working today, uh, we could actually see a very major building works uh, going on. And that's building the new airport. And I think Cockertock will really come on once it gets uh, access to an airport. As it is at the the moment, there are no roads into where I am. So if I don't come back, Derek, you won't be able to come and find me by road. Uh, You'd have to either get a boat or you'd fly in by helicopter. But that's the only way to get here. And that's the beauty of being in Cockertock. I'm trying to get a mental picture of where exactly you are, Ken. So I'm imagining a map of the world or a globe. And if you think of where Greenland is to the north, you've got Russia dominating it up there in the north. And then to the northeast, you've got... Finland, Sweden and Norway, and then come down a bit, you've got Iceland, and then flip over, you've got the United States on the other side to the west and Canada, and then you're surrounded by water, you've got the Arctic Ocean in the north, and in the south you've got the Atlantic Ocean. So now, where exactly are you in Greenland and what can you see? So it's on the southwestern uh, edge of Greenland and it is just surrounded by what looks like huge Arctic tundra. So there's lots and lots of bare rock because we're right beside the ocean. And uh, just behind us then we have the huge big uh, um, ice cap, the big Greenlandic ice cap. Uh, we can't actually see it from where we are, but we flew right over it from Narsasawak when I come in on uh, when I come in on Tuesday. And that's a really, really spectacular thing to see. Um, So you're in a situation where in a lot of Greenland it is extremely cold. But in this area here, it does get a much warmer climate in the winter, relatively speaking. So the actual bays or fjords that are here stay free. But they get a lot of visiting polar bears here. I was talking about the polar bears to them yesterday. And they love to see the polar bears coming. They they visit in the wintertime. I haven't seen any, obviously, at this stage. I'm too early. And have they passed any comments about whether or not there's an increase or a decline in the number of bears? Um, they didn't seem to feel that it had changed very much, either in one direction or the other. But it may very well be um, that this is an area that gets polar bears, but they may not see the sort of densities of polar bears that you might see further north. 
but uh, the whole continent gets a vast amount of ice um, in the winter time and I'm sure for the remaining polar bears I'm sure it's, a, it's an ideal habitat for them but interestingly uh, the area um, that I'm in is not that terribly far from the Northwest Passage and we were looking at very large concentrations of jellyfish yesterday and I had read in recent times that there are quite a lot of jellyfish now of species that are from the Pacific starting to appear in this particular area and uh, north of here and across to the northwest as well. And um, we may very well see very big changes if the ice doesn't uh, fully form over that northwest passage into the future. And we have concerns as well that we may see a joining up of all of the salmon species that are in the Pacific with the salmon that are here from the Atlantic, including our own salmon. So if we look across, straight across the ocean, if we were outside, I'm in a fjord, but if I was out in the open ocean, I could look across at the tip of Newfoundland if I could see that far. So that's exactly where it is. So you're on terra firma right now, Ken, you're in your bedroom, as you've told us. Just a few hours behind, as I understand, three hours or thereabouts, so you're still awake. We haven't disturbed your sleep. But why are you there? You spend most of your time when you're in Greenland on the water. And what exactly has the Greenland Tracking Project got to do with Irish salmon? Well, interestingly, um, about, I suppose it was 1960, maybe 61, 62, the people who aren't resident in Greenland uh, discovered that there were loads of salmon around Greenland. Um, this had been known, obviously, forever by the uh, Greenlandic people themselves. It was part of their catch. They knew these salmon were here, but nobody had any idea why these salmon were here, where they were from. But then quite a large and legal commercial fishery developed very quickly in the 60s to such an extent that uh, as these uh, ships that were catching salmon started to pick up uh, salmon that had been tagged in, in uh, Canada, in the US, in Ireland, in Scotland, they realised that these were the feeding salmon. European and American salmon were actually feeding here in Greenland because the seas are exceptionally rich. I mean, it was incredible yesterday to see the abundance of food around the boat. And uh, the fish at the moment are, are, are gorging themselves on all the available food that's here. So these very rich seas then, they offer a home for our bigger salmon. We have two types of salmon. We have the smaller salmon we call grilts, but the bigger salmon, which are normally between 10 and 20 pounds weight, it's here where I'm sitting just outside my window here in the fjords. That's where these salmon come to feed. It's a very, very long way. It's thousands of kilometers. And to find their way there, to find the food and find their way back, it's just extraordinary to sit in the boat and imagine that underneath are plenty of salmon, particularly in this area from Scotland and Ireland. And that's why you're there, Ken, along with your team members to follow them to Greenland to discover what happens along the way on these magnificent journeys. It's the where they go, really. And it's, as I say, I'm piggybacking on some wonderful work that's been ongoing now by my colleagues from the Atlantic Salmon Federation and learning from them. We're all involved in looking at the tracks that the salmon take because we're very concerned, as I've mentioned on the programme before, about the effects of climate change and how that's changing the ocean. And up to this, certainly in Europe, we've concentrated very much on the early stages, the little baby salmon going out to sea and traveling up, as we know now, to Norway to do their initial feeding uh, around the Norwegian coast. But there was a real gap in our knowledge in terms of what happened then to fish that stayed more than one year at sea. 
We knew that they ended up in Greenland, but we have no idea how they really get here and we've no idea how they get home to us. We're beginning to put that patchwork now together because of the work that John and his colleagues are doing. And that's what gave me the opportunity then to come and work with them uh, to see how we can actually locate these salmon, how we can take a subsample of the salmon, put some really very clever tags in them and to monitor the salmon on their way back. And John has been doing this over the last few years. And fortunately, because of COVID, I was to come out in 2020 and never made it. And his results from the last two years clearly show uh, that almost half of his tagged fish are heading back to Scotland and Ireland. And we've, doing, we've done genetics as well on those fish to, to show where they were from. So we have a real interest this year in getting um, European uh, groups that are interested in the conservation of salmon to get behind this programme and hopefully to offer us some funding then from Christmas onwards so we can continue the wonderful work that's going on here. It's so exciting. I mean, the amount we learned today even was just amazing. Just the behaviour of these creatures and what they're doing in the ocean and how different it is to what they do in freshwater. I was, I'm just bowled over by what I've done. I'm only here two days. It's just fantastic. Well, give us a little insight, Ken. What have you learned? Well, what we have learned is that these fish are just, in essence, most people listening to us, I think, will know what a pike is. Well, these are big silver pike at this stage. We tend to put them on a pedestal and they're looked on as very delicate fish that take a fly and uh, that very sophisticated anglers then can catch on a fly rod. These creatures are dashing around under our boat. We can see them on the echo sounder. Um, the seas, as I mentioned earlier, absolutely alive with what looked like very small little uh, sand eels. There's bigger sand eels. There's any amount of small squid. And they're feeding on these creatures and they're actually feeding in shoals because one of the salmon that we caught yesterday, as it breached, as it came near the boat, four, five, six salmon came up and splashed about, not understanding what was happening. And to see these fish coming right under the boat, these big elusive salmon as we would see them in freshwater and to see them coming close to the boat was a revelation. And also we know from the work that John is doing and has done that you can find them all through the water column. We know that the baby salmon tend, tend to spend a lot of time in the surface layers of the ocean, whereas these guys seem to feed wherever the food is available. And we have a fantastic boatman with us today, um, just an amazing guy who has an incredible knowledge of the natural history of his fjords and of this land. And he was telling us that even in the wintertime, if some of the areas north of here get iced up, the fish just go deeper. They're, they're around all the time. They're feeding all the time. So we knew nothing about the movements or the biology of these fish. And uh, we hope now to use some tracking units in the future and to be able to look at their local migrations here as well as their bigger migrations across the seas. So it's filling in what was an absolute gap in our knowledge. And it's interesting that it's happening at a time when climate change is really starting to impact the, the Arctic, where the big ice cap here in Greenland is not fully forming any winter uh, where you have a situation where you have lots of little small new streams beginning to gush out north of here from the glacier. They're semi-permanent at the moment and we've seen reports now that a sister species of the salmon, Arctic char, are beginning to invade these little streams. So we're seeing what happened 10,000 years ago. From a pl planet's point of view, it may be a disaster. From a biologist's point of view, it's absolutely fascinating to be here at this time and to see these changes happen. Ken, just before Richard gets in, and I know he's itching to do so, I just want to remind listeners that 
Irish salmon are Atlantic salmon and they spend a few years in Irish rivers as juveniles before heading out to sea. So when they leave our shores and head out to sea, where do they go? They go to, first of all, they go to Norway. And um, my colleagues then have worked on this since uh, the Salsi programme, again, something I talked about on the radio in 2008 to 2010, because I was working for the Marine Institute at that stage, and we took a, a major role in that Salsi programme. That was the first big salmon at sea programme. Um, uh, we began to understand then the route that, that they were taking. So they go up along uh, the west coast of Norway and they arrive, having left our rivers in May, they arrive up there mid to late July. They feed away there until the autumn time. We're not absolutely certain what happens, but we suggest that maybe at that time they then make the decision whether they're going to actually come back and lay their eggs after one year or they're going to stay in, at sea for two or three years. So the ones that are going to come back to us at what we call grilse or smaller salmon, they head back south to an area around the Faroe Islands. They feed there and then come back to us the following summer. Whereas the, the fish that we're looking at here in Greenland, they make this massive journey from Norway all, all the way across to East Greenland around the southern tip, just to my left here, the southern tip of Greenland, and then up into the area where I am. And they stay there for another year or two. And then they make this massive great journey then straight back right across the ocean. And that journey now, John Carr, my colleague, the chap who's leading the research programme, he is beginning to map that journey back. And also there's an equivalent journey back to North America. So um, the other thing, the last time I was in Greenland that really amazed me, I thought these fish would be out in the high seas. I thought they'd be miles out from the coast. They're actually in quite narrow uh, fjord-like bays, just like Killary Harbour. It's actually very, very similar to Killary Harbour where we are here, with these massive great rocky promontories coming right out onto the edge of the water and going down to great depths. Uh, but it's just alive with food, as I say, and they're making the most of it. So you're catching some fish and you're putting tags on them. Yes, that's right. So we're putting two types, types of tags on them. The most interesting tag, really, uh, this is really sophisticated technology. They cost about $5,000 each. And they're satellite tags. They're the same tags that are used on whales and dolphins and so on. So what happens is they're programmed and there's a little harness then we fit on the back of the fish. And the fish carries the tag then for about six months. And at that stage, then there's, the, there's a small little chemical pack inside that harness. It has to be in salt water for it to trigger. And after about six months, then it dissolves away the connection between the actual sausage shaped, um, which looks a bit like my microphone, actually. The sausage shaped uh, um, satellite tag is released, goes to the surface and immediately starts to transmit to satellites. And the satellites then pick up the information and that's transferred then back to the lab. Um, and it, it's, it gives us really detailed information on a daily basis of the, of the migration patterns, the movement, the temperature and so on of the fish, how deep they dive, which is very interesting. And we've seen some incredible records in terms of how deep they can dive. So there's lots, lots of information comes back. And then we're tagging with other tags as well, which are called acoustic tags. And they basically are transmitting all the time. And a lot of places now we have receivers um, uh, either in the sea or in river mouths. And we're hoping that some of these other transmitter tags which are the smaller fish, we're tagging the smaller fish with the transmitter tags, they might be picked up as well. Ken, that's fascinating. I understand, Ken, that salmon spawn in only one river in 
Greenland. Do you expect, and presumably they don't spawn in other rivers because it's so cold and frozen up all the time. Now with climate change coming, are you anticipating further colonization of rivers in Greenland? Well, th- th- when I mentioned earlier that we're seeing what happened uh, 10,000 years ago repeat itself, I would not be at all surprised because we do know that with wild Atlantic salmon, there's a straying rate of somewhere between 6 and 8% on average. So it's a great way for nature to ensure if we get a situation as we're living through at the moment, that there, there is an opportunity for fish to eke out a living in uh, brand new habitats that wouldn't have been the place of their birth. So if we have straying salmon around, well, certainly we know in the past that it began with the char. After the char, then some of the sea-run trout went into these rivers and then finally the salmon. So it may very well repeat itself. And where I am, interestingly, there's a lot of salmon on the other side of the Northwest Passage that are different species, Pacific salmon. So if we start to get some of those coming down through, it'll be really interesting to see what's going to happen. Interesting or bad, Ken, would you say? Well, I, maybe I'm too positive, but I, I, I think these fish have been around, whether it's Pacific or Atlantic, um, they've been around for millions of years. It was 20 million years ago that they split between Atlantic and Pacific. So they will eke out an existence long before, or long after, rather, we're gone. So I would have great faith that they'll be, uh, that they'll be able to accommodate themselves. I think the most interesting thing is that um, it's not so much that things won't change. I think they will change, but I do think that the fish will find a way of changing with them. We may not find the fish in the places we originally thought they should be, but they'll make their own mind up where they should go. And certainly in this Arctic area where they've lots of cold, clean water, seems to be an ideal habitat for them. Salmon need trees to shelter under when they spawn, don't they? Now, Greenland is not a place one associates with trees. Uh, Will that be a barrier to their colonizing rivers there? I don't think so, in the sense that um, remember when, when, when salmon spawn in the wintertime, and you remember myself and yourself and Derek down, we did a program at one stage where we, we actually saw some salmon spawning down in County Mayo. Um, and certainly in the wintertime, you have very little vegetation about. Um, you have a situation where you have barren rivers, cold, clean water, as I mentioned earlier, lots and lots of gravel, very often in our case, very coloured water. Uh, so the coloured water itself is, is, is a protection. Um, no, I don't think that would be, be a major issue. We're very concerned, obviously, around uh, Europe in terms of the effects of uh, increasing temperatures on our waterways. And there is a very big push uh, to put back vegetation along riverbanks to try and shade the riverbanks and so on. But I don't think in this area it's going to be a major problem. There's actually quite a lot of tundra grasses and small bushes and so on. I think they'd be sufficient for, uh, for, for the juvenile fish if they came about. The um, Arctic char that I mentioned earlier, they're quite large here. Some of those would be as big as small salmon, five or six pounds weight. And they do extraordinarily well in these very barren streams. So again, nature can compensate and and can make sure that they'll do well. There's fears for the survival of salmon in Europe. Can we hope that Greenland will take it up and that the salmon will not die out? They will simply shift northwards. Is the Greenland situation the saviour of our salmon? I'm not sure it's Greenland. Um, Here we have the bigger salmon, 
we have what we call the multi sea winter salmon and they were always the smaller numbers of bigger fish in our case in Irish case in particular where uh, the dominant uh, size of salmon are these smaller grills but I think the overall Arctic area I think the area right across from uh, the White Sea right across from Russia across the northern portion of Finland, the northern portion in Norway, and right across then towards um, Iceland and across to Greenland. I think that whole area will be the saviour of the salmon. And I think uh, that the salmon will adapt uh, to those areas, provided, of course, we don't get catastrophic changes, changes that will completely alter those areas as well. But all of the forecasts at the moment would indicate that we may see changes in those northern areas, but changes that will make them more habitable for the fish rather than a situation where in some way it excludes them. But I'm not sure I'd like to be a salmon in Portugal um, over the next uh, 50 or 60 years. I think I'd much prefer to be a salmon living in these lovely cool, cool fjords outside my window. Is the tagging regime changing? There was a paper a few years ago by the Georgia Institute of Technology about adipose fins, the little fin on the back in front of the tail. It was thought that this was vestigial, that is to say, like your appendix, uh, no known function, and that we could dispense with it. And we used to cut that off, you used as a way of tagging salmon. But this particular paper argued that, in fact, it has a function. It monitors the water going to the tail fin, and it's able to give information to the fish about that water, which is important. Does this mean that that method of tagging fish is gone and that you've gone over now to the high-tech stuff? Um, it's not gone completely. Um, certainly um, in Ireland in particular now, we, we release huge numbers of fish in some of the, uh, some of the rivers that, uh, that, that, that are harnessed for electricity and so on. And a lot of those fish are adipose-clipped. We did a lot of work in Ireland and looked at, obviously very carefully, at the effects of any sort of uh, clipping of that, of, of that nature. I remember that paper coming out very clearly and I remember some subsequent papers as well. And we, we've put a lot of thought in. So uh, certainly if there is any fin clipping now, it's done with great care. But there are a, a huge amount of studies um, that actually show that in general, particularly with reared salmon as distinct from the wild ones, that the, um, um, the incidence of mortality as a result of that is very tiny. But nowadays, people don't generally don't clip fins at all. As you say, the technology has taken over. So, for example, the lovely, neat little acoustic tags, the little transmitter tags, they're very tiny. And what you do is put the fish asleep, put a tiny, tiny little slit in the fish, slip in this tiny little uh, tubular um, uh, tag, which is only, you know, maybe a kind of centimetre long, they just slip that into the body cavity, one little suture, fish is then put into a recovery bath and then it's released and they swim away absolutely, I think, uh, as healthy as when they went in. So that, that sort of technology has come on apace and it will improve. I'm reminded of ringing birds here. When you catch a bird, you establish a lot of things. Its age, its sex, to the extent to which you can. You take measurements and so forth. You glean as much information about that individual bird as you can. Now, you troll for fish behind your boat. Take us out on the boat and you've caught a fish. What is your procedure then? What measurements do you take? What can you determine in your hand? Well, in the hand, what you what you take is you take the um, and uh, remember, as I say, the fish is, is is put asleep. We use clove oil, and um, they go sleep very quickly. 
So then again, um, water is being um, uh, spread through a hose over the fish all the time to make sure that the gills are wet and so on, they're not stressed. So they're put into a tubular type um, uh, measuring board. So their head is just gently put up against the end of that. The measurement is taken, a weight is taken as they're lifted off. We take a few little scales. We get a huge amount of information from the scales, including the genetics of the fish itself. And that's about it, really. Um, the fish then is, is, is released. And in some instances, um, in some programs, the fish may be photographed as well and then released. But the, um, the scales are just fantastic because they are really um, a marine log of uh, the life of the fish. And it also has inside in the center then, just like a tree, it has a history then of freshwater um, in terms of its age and its uh, growth rate and so on. And we used to concentrate, when I started many decades ago as a young biologist, we concentrated mostly on, on the physical side of it. But there are just so many chemical tracers available in the uh, in the scales. The scales can tell you, you know, what the fish was feeding on. The scale can tell you the genetics of the fish and where the fish came from. So the, it's really a treasure trove. So th those uh, those th those samples are really uh, very carefully looked after and very carefully stored. I've heard it argued that your hand, when you handle a fish 37 degrees centigrade, so much higher in temperature than the fish, that this is actually equivalent to one of us being thrown into a bath of scalding water or something like that, and that it harms the fish. Is there any truth in that, or do you guard against that? Now, we, we guard against it very carefully. I, w I don't think it's as dramatic as, as, as being a, a sort of scalding hand, but certainly we, you have to be very careful in terms of any sort of change. And it's not just temperature that you have to be careful about if you're handling fish because uh, actually in the marine here, it's a bit of a joy because we don't have the same issues I'm going to, going to describe. But if we're handling fish in freshwater, there's lots and lots of fungal spores around in freshwater. And uh, if we remove the overcoat, the slime of the fish, there's a real danger that some of those then will take hold and you get a fluffy white fungal infection on the fish. You can also stress the fish, as I say. So people generally are very careful in terms of making sure that um, if you're handling fish, that you're doing it we do all the work now in a watery environment. Uh, there's really no no stress or the stress is minimised in terms of uh, any procedure then that's carried out. But the, as I say, the, the proof of the pudding is the percentage of fish that um, are recorded releasing the tags, which meant they have survived very in a very healthy state, we hope, for six months. And then uh, some of those fish then um, may make it back. And if they make it back, then um, sometimes the tag doesn't trigger and you actually get um, the fish coming back with the tag intact. That happened a few times last year. So um, overall, the science is very carefully done and there's a lot of effort made to make sure that there's very, very small uh, mortality uh, based around any of these programs and that we're getting a true picture in terms of the movement of the fish. You're always worried if you're putting um, any sort of tracker on any sort of animal that it's going to give you very strange and very odd behavior. And that's why you have to keep repeating the experiment over quite a number of years. Well, it's fascinating listening to you, Ken, I have to say. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time out of your very busy schedule there in Greenland. Ken, thank you very much indeed. All right, guys. Talk to you soon again. Thank Best you. Bye. Luck, Ken. Bye. And that's pretty much all we have time for. Don't forget, you can visit the website anytime you like, rte.ie forward slash mini. Until next time, goodbye, goodbye, goodbye.